Before we read God's word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have not left us alone, but are leading us in paths of righteousness by these words of truth. We thank you that they never fail. And we thank you that you are faithful to minister them to us by the preaching of it through the power of your Holy Spirit. As we come now and read and consider this portion, would you let your voice be heard by your people? Indeed, from week to week, we hear many things from many worldly places. We come tonight to hear from God. Renew a right spirit within us. Help us that we may take heed how we hear. Now come, Holy Spirit, and take the meager scraps of this poor minister and do a work of multiplication that our hearts and minds may be fed richly from the bounty of your word. Come to us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. text tonight is Romans 1 verses 26 and 27. Hear God's word. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. I wonder how many of you didn't know what text we were in tonight. In our, uh... Well, I won't, I won't ascribe to you such uh, sneaky things as wanting to leave, but um, I do want to give a caveat before we start. Similar to when we got to the seventh commandment, uh, you know, 10 years ago in Exodus. Um, I, and, and, and to be clear, I'm not one to defend the word of God. He doesn't need my help in defending it. Parents, I will keep this as tame as possible. I've thought through the words that I'll be using. I'm trying to be particular uh, in what I've provided in my own notes. But we're going to have to use some words. We're going to have to say the word sex. We're going to have to say the word homosexuality. Um, they're necessary. This is my encouragement. Because there are young people in the room, and I praise God for it because they need to hear from God's word on these matters. Um, I will share with you what I will share with my daughters. The oldest is five, um, and I would say this to all of them if the, the question comes up. I'm not quite sure it will. When people refuse to love God, they fall into a life of sin. And sometimes God lets them do very wicked things, which can include a refusal to acknowledge how God made us as male and female. You know, that's a true thing you can say to your kids. It's not everything that will one day be necessary to say to your kids on these issues. That's the beauty of raising children, isn't it? That we don't have to explain everything in detail from the very beginning. We can lead them into it. You should always tell them the truth. And details can often wait till they are older. But if your children are older than mine or even much older than mine, I pray that this will be an opportunity for you to speak with them about these issues. Um, do not let the world be the first voice that your children hear on these matters. 
they must always and primarily hear from God's word. And that is through you primarily, parents. Don't wait for it to come up in a preaching series before you deal with it. It needs to be a conversation you have. What does the Bible say about what we're dealing with in the world? Take time. Take the opportunity. If you need, if you need it, I, I, please, I'm here. Reach out to me. We can talk through how we talk through these things with our kids. Okay, all that to say, now let's get into the text. Uh, remember that we're working uh, sort of from verse 17 down through the next couple of chapters until we get to verse uh, 20 of chapter 3. That thought in verse 17 that Paul's jumping off of, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the only possibility of life for anyone is to be accepted by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's already told us. We need righteousness. And it only comes through the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And go back up to verse 16. This section that starts in 18 begins Paul's quest to convince his readers and us that we need the gospel. That mankind is in a desperate state of wrath and unbelief. We cannot save ourselves. Remember verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he continues on to explain why, right? That mankind has been presented with a, a clear view of God in, in the created order. And instead of believing and, and honoring and showing gratitude toward the God who made us, mankind has elected to believe a lie. That's verse uh, 23. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've decided to be our own gods and to ignore the one that actually is. We've decided to live however we see fit. And what Paul begins to do in verse 24 down through the end of this chapter is give us examples of how we see this at play in the world around us. Last week we looked at example number one. God gave them up, verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now that was fairly generic and we talked about that. But now in example number two, which begins in 26 and 27 here tonight, it's, it's a rather terrifying couple of verses if we're paying attention. When left unchecked by the grace of God, mankind will descend into that phrase, verse 26, into dishonorable passions. And that's really the question that we're, it's the matter we're dealing with. What happens when God's grace is pulled back in the life of a sinner? We're not just talking about his grace to save, even his common grace. There are plenty of people that don't know God through Christ, that, that don't lean into the sin described in these verses. And that's God's common grace upon them. Because what we read here is that when God's grace is removed and he allows them the judgment of going into their sin, they go all the way down. Three steps for us to take tonight. First, we're going to try to define what this dishonorable passions is referring to. Then we're going to look at what Paul has to say about these dishonorable passions. And thirdly, we'll make some application points as we consider these things. First, look at 26a again. 
for this reason, right? Thinking back to the previous verses that that they have forsaken God and refused to honor him or give thanks to him. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. There's desires that are without honor. 24 and 25 record that God gave them up to impurity and, and dishonor. This example is more specific, and the specifications come in, verse, in the rest of the verses. So the middle of 26, what are these dishonorable passions? Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. What are these dishonorable passions? Men and women both giving up natural relations with each other and instead taking up that which is contrary to nature, relations with those of the same kind. This is a pointed reference to homosexuality. I wonder if, if it's curious to you, it ought to be, that Paul starts with the women in the middle of verse 26. This dishonorable passion is most often associated with men. But the apostle is making a point about how far gone sinful mankind is apart from the grace of God. John Murray talks about it like this. He suggests that it may be better to read that part of the verse as, uh, look at the middle of 26, even their women exchanged natural relations. Murray writes, it is the delicacy which belongs to the woman that makes more apparent the degeneracy of homosexual indulgence in their case. What's this mean? Paul is saying, this is how perverse mankind apart from God has become. Left to themselves, apart from God's common grace, even the women have descended into flagrant and wicked sexual perversion. I, I really should tell you, much of these verses, these two verses, could be translated more emphatically. But the language is, is stronger in the original than it is in our English. Verse 27, as an example, tacking the men onto this, not as a second thought, but just continuing the train of thought. We might read verse 27. The men likewise gave up as good. It, it's, it's more intentional, more, more uh, willful than that. They, they sent away natural relations with women and were, yes, consumed with passion, as the ESV says, but maybe perhaps we'd say inflamed with sexual desire for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. We're not getting into the details. I think we can see it at the top of the sin, depending on, on your orientation, I suppose, to, to the discussion. Uh, this is sort of the end of it, the worst of it. The important thought here is to remember that this wicked behavior is judgment upon ungodly people. God has, as it says, given them up to these desires. And so I want us to widen our scope a little bit. You know, we kind of, we, we did it with the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not commit adultery means a lot more than just you shall not commit adultery. There's positive and negative things associated with that. It's not as if these men and women here represented woke up one day and engaged in these activities. There's a trajectory 
that we can trace, right? There are heart issues at play in these people described. There are heart issues at play in our own hearts and minds. God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. His presence and his providence are evident in the world. But ungodly mankind suppresses that truth and says no to the existence of God. They know, it's clear, they know from verse 21, from, from creation and providence and from, from their own image-bearing hearts, they know that there is a God. But they did not honor Him as God, nor have we given thanks to Him as our Creator and Sustainer. And their dismissal of God, this refusal to acknowledge Him, is not some kind of neutral choice, as if you can live your life and kind of have God or not have God. If you refuse to acknowledge God, if you refuse to worship Him, it is because you are choosing to worship something else. Okay? It's idolatry. You're replacing Him with something. That's the fundamental issue that Paul is tracing for us. He's proclaiming to us what idolatry leads to. What is it? What does it look like? Where do people go when they exchange the glory of the immortal God? When they choose to worship the creature rather than the creator? You know, in antiquity, people's worship the sun or the moon or Mother Nature. It's much more refined now, isn't it? We're not quite so archaic. People worship gods that are created by supposed ingenuity. What we might call that foolish wisdom. There's religions popping up all over the place. Many have taken the true word of God and, and twisted it to accommodate some religion of their own design. Other forms of idolatry are less pronounced. Idolatry comes out uh, in those situations, less in a stated system of belief and more in our everyday lives. Mankind's, we will soon, we, we, we can see in these ways, worships money and power and pleasure and things. But down at the very bottom of all idolatry is idolatry of self. Left unchecked by the grace of God, Mankind will choose every time to worship self above anything else. Now that pride, that self-idolatry may look like idolatry of other things, right? Because if, if I am my own God, I'm just seeking to have whatever will make me happy. And it looks like idolatry to other things. But that's, that's why we say down at the bottom, all of this is just idolatry of self. Life becomes about what I want and how I can get it and how I can keep it. A graceless life is all about self. So much so that, as Paul makes clear here, even the object of one's corrupt affections becomes as close to self as possible. Now pay attention, track with this. A man or a woman, left unchecked by God's grace, will eventually all the way down at the bottom, all the way tracked so far into sin, will eventually desire intimacy with what is like themselves. You see? That they fall in love so much with what they see in the mirror 
that they become inflamed with lust for that same object, you see. Homosexuality is an outworking of unrestrained self-idolatry. But this self-idolatry reveals itself in lesser things than what are described here. Lest you think you can escape from this sermon because you're not described in 26 and 27, let me remind you of the heart issues that all sin has and all the roots that it can take in our own hearts. Self-idolatry, yes indeed, leads to homosexuality, but can also be seen, that self-idolatry, in so-called lesser things in our own lives. Sleazy romance novels or online pornography, no matter um, the, the, the orientation that they assume, provide the user with a fantasy that is more in line with their own temperament than that of their natural counterpart. That these wicked kinds of media all the kinds of them, are inherently homosexual. They are a step on their trajectory to self-idolatry because as we idolize what's in the mirror, we start to want what's in the mirror, okay? But it comes down even closer to home, I think. Even the way that we treat our spouses can have the stain of this sin, now, when I say these things, I'm not talking about just sort of natural communication issues not that, that come along with marriage. They all come along with them. By the way, if you're not married, you'll find them one day. Think about um, how we seek ourselves in our marriages instead of seeking after our spouses in our marriages. You know, do you wish that your husband was more like a woman in the way he communicates? or in the way that he relates to you? Do you wish your wife's thought patterns more lined up with yours or, or that she could just express herself the way that you want her to? Even these are glimmers of self-idolatry and left unchecked lead in a certain direction. These are glimmers of that same sin, hoping in some way that, that we might be the center of not just our own world, but everyone else's and that they would conform to our image in the process. This is a path that leads, Paul says, to dishonorable passions. And this is a path that any one of us could be on, not just those who identify with, with homosexual sin patterns. So, what about these dishonorable passions? I have three things that we're going to trace through these two verses, three things that Paul says about these dishonorable passions. And I should tell you that I'm indebted to my, as it turns out, my first PCA minister when I came into the denomination many years ago, Mike Ross, down in Jackson, Mississippi, makes these three points and, and, and really just using his outline to track them through with you. First look, these dishonorable passions are unnatural. Look at 26. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Why 
Why are these homosexual passions sinful? Because they are contrary to nature. What do we mean? They are contrary to the way that God made things. That they violate not just the moral law, but they, they, they violate the biological order of things. Genesis chapter 2, a handful of verses just to remind you of, the, of, of the, the narrative there. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the way God made things. And it's unnatural to deviate from that order of creation. But James Montgomery Boyce kind of expands on this a little bit, thinking about the idea of, of unnatural or contrary to nature. Boyce says that we may well need the Bible to tell us that fornication is wrong. But in the case of homosexuality, we do not even need this special revelation. Practices of this kind are not normal. They were not meant to be. It is not the way we're made. For what it's worth, the word natural there it doesn't mean the feeling that an individual has, right? The thing that you feel is natural for whoever you may be. It is a precise word that is referring to the way God made things, the created order. It, it's, no one is permitted to go against that order. Now, this is often, maybe perhaps this unnatural point, a very difficult thing for people to accept. Uh, the world has worked hard to convince us that homosexuality and transgenderism is normal. Let's tack on to that, the, that it's, it's worked hard to convince us that self-idolatry is, is the way of life that you should choose, whatever that means for you. But the only way for sin like this, of, of any kind, the only way for sin to become acceptable is to create a new God who's okay with it. Whatever that God may be is not the true one. Because the true God's not okay with this. Mike Ross writes it like this. This fact is clear. Paul, speaking under divine inspiration, is saying that homosexuality is both unnatural and therefore unacceptable to God. These dishonorable passions are unnatural Secondly, Paul tells us that these dishonorable passions are shameless. Look at 27 again. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and here it is, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. These acts of homosexuality are shameless. So far into sin, these practitioners have descended that they no longer feel shame for something that is shameful, that is unnatural. 
Their consciences have been seared. That is, they have been burned to the point where all sense has been sent away. And they no longer feel the condemnation of nature upon their actions. It's a horrible pride shamelessness. And isn't this the mantra of the movement? Pride. Shamelessness. This is why they are so evangelical with their perverse sexuality. If they can win more to their cause, they will feel less alone, less isolated in the perversion that God has allowed them to descend into. If they can remove... they will try to remove all remaining guilt by normalizing their self-idolatry. And that's precisely what's happened, isn't it? It's become so normal in our world that there's no more guilt. Shamelessness. But Ross makes the point here that's very helpful for us to remember. In a a sense, we may even just say he's reminding us that God is still at work. Um, That though... Though the movement of people descending into this active lifestyle would seek to remove their guilt by getting the world to embrace it, the shame of such sin cannot be removed. Dr. Ross says that three voices cannot be silenced. The voice of God speaking in His Word. The voice of the faithful preacher speaking into culture. And the voice of their own consciences speaking to their souls. The word, the pulpit, the conscience. Try as the world may to normalize sin of any kind, and especially of this kind. God is still at work. And He will receive glory in the end. This dishonorable passion is unnatural and it's shameless, but thirdly, Ross points out that it's deadly. It's the end of verse 27. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The people that descend this far down the path of self-idolatry have been captivated by the lie that God does not exist and they can rule their own lives however they see fit. But even to them still... Still in this life, the wrath of God continues to be revealed against them. Dr. Duncan makes the point here that that there may be, in one sense, some providential temporal judgment on homosexuality and things like AIDS and the many physical and psychological and, and medical consequences of such behavior. But Ligon also says, and he says this is actually more of Paul's point, that receiving the due penalty for their error is actually happening as they descend into this lifestyle. He's saying the perversion of their hearts is their judgment. What, What could be more of a curse, more of a judgment, than to be so far away from God that you're living a life that is entirely contrary to what He designed for His people in the first place. They're not living a good life. This lifestyle is not cool. It's not hip. This isn't the way that we should go. We shouldn't think that there's something here. Neither is it something we can ignore. This is a wrong way of living. It's a dreadful way of living. 
They may have smiles on their faces and they may say that they are full of pride over the choices they have made, but it is a wretched life far from God. If there's any hint of self-idolatry in your heart. Again, not necessarily this to this degree. If there's anything at all in your heart remaining Christian that wants to claim self above everything else, you put it to death. That way leads certain death for you. Be warned and be aware. I want to close by uh, by just teasing out a few points of application. And the first is this, and I hope this has become clear as we've worked through these verses. Make sure that you aren't thinking about those people as you hear a sermon like this. This is a description of the way sin leads for you, but for the grace of God. Just because these particular words in these two verses may not describe your experience right now, doesn't mean that you are untouched by self-idolatry. You have a desperate need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, quoting another minister, listen, I don't know which of you in this room may have self-idolatry in your heart. I suspect all of us have some amount of that. I've got plenty to spare if you need some. Some of you may struggle with the very things that Paul writes about here in these verses with unnatural desires, unnatural relations in some way. Listen, homosexual sin is no match for the love of God. It is no match for the death of Christ. And it is no match for the grace of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will be able to inherit the kingdom of God. Just add your name to the list, okay? He's talking about all of us. What does he say to believers in Corinth? Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Beloved, your sins deserve the unmitigated wrath of God Almighty because you have offended against Him and because justice demands it. But because of His love for you, He's put His wrath on Christ on the cross and all He requires of you is to trust and believe. No matter who you were, no matter what you did, no matter where you've come from, your sins are no match for the love of God, no match for the death of Christ, no match for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Turn from sin and find salvation in the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, no matter who you are, or what sins you have committed or are committing, homosexuality and everything else, when God makes us alive in Christ, our old selves are gone and put to death on the cross. And we are called to live a new life in the Lord Jesus. And so if, if you're 
struggling with self-idolatry all the way to, to blatant homosexuality, wherever you may be in the middle, take Paul's advice from Colossians chapter 3 and put to death that which is earthly in you. And how do we do that? You cling to the word. This becomes your best friend. Christian, if this is not your best friend, there's something wrong. If this is not your daily companion, there's something wrong. This word of God, this Bible, is all that we need for a life of godliness before our Savior. That to which he's called us is blamelessness and righteousness. And he's given us all we need that we may walk in those ways. Forsake self-idolatry, forsake homosexuality, forsake pride, and cling to Christ and his word and know that he stands ready to save all who would come to him in faith believing, all who would return to him again and confess their sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Why? Because your Savior, Christian, stands in heaven and pleads for you. Remember what Tim said this morning. They've been paid for. God's not looking for your own payment on your sin. He wants you to come to him in faith believing so that you might live a life free from sin. And still, though we may have it lingering in our lives, trust in the hope of heaven that one day sin will be no more. Never again will we displease God. And always we will be be happy and holy in him. Come to the one who makes all things new. Would you right now? Would you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in faith believing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, come for the sake of your dear son and send your Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We mourn our sin. We loathe what remains in us, but we hope and trust in the gospel of Jesus that you have set us free from sin and death and have pointed us, promised us, indeed said we are in heaven just as sure as it will be one day. So come and give us hope and strength for the days ahead. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.